Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast, episode 95. Sorry about the audio issues last week. I record on Zoom and there's an auto sort of noise cancellation that kicks in even though I shut it off if I start a new window. It comes up again, so I apologize for wasting your time. But hopefully it's working this week. This is the McAllister, if you read my piece on David Crosby. This uh, instrument was... Crucial to our relationship, built by the great Roy McAllister, who builds for Jackson and David. And Roy's going through his own health battles, so pulling this out, sending some good vibes. Hopefully you can hear it. It's like a piano. It's not your run-of-the-mill instrument. Um, Anyway, thanks for tuning in. I figured I'd do another episode. It was bugging me that the audio wasn't working, and I got so many nice responses, and I know it was a bit of a bummer episode last week. So I'm here to give you even more of a bummer. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. But I want to talk about Jimmy Carter. It looks like Jimmy Carter, you know, is on his way home. And if you think about a life well lived, he's gotta be at the top of that list. I mean, the guy was a nuclear physicist, right? A nuclear technician. When he was at the Naval Academy, he was one of the first people to train in nuclear technology. He served on nuclear submarines. We all know the story, or maybe we all don't know the story, but in Canada, he helped save a town and like lowered himself into a nuclear reactor that was gonna overheat. And, and be like Chernobyl. This is long before Chernobyl. And, uh, you know, it was a very precarious, dangerous situation. And he had worked out with a team what he needed to do to make this repair. And he only had 90 seconds to do it. And they lowered him into the mouth of a nuclear reactor and he pulled this stuff off. Like, that's not made up, you know? That's some James Bond type of stuff. And that's before, you know, he went back to Georgia and served his community. You know, we all know sort of famously a peanut farmer. He did, you know, own a peanut farm that I think he sold just in case, you know, when he became president, there would be any sort of, you know, whiff of impropriety. Back then, dudes would just sell their businesses. You know, Trump pretended to like, you know, step away from the company. And meanwhile, he spent the first, you know, four hours of his business day in the private quarters upstairs checking in with his sons making deals for his businesses you know that's why he went to golf courses all the time was to you know launder money but anyway we're not going to talk about that scumbag at least not yet let's talk about Jimmy Carter because he was you know he was my example as a young kid as, as as to you know how politics could serve all people and what progressivism meant and what like bringing real spirituality and real religion into uh, the political realm. And I don't mean that in terms of like religiosity or fundamentalism or any of that kind of stuff, right? Because, you know, 
Carter's a deeply religious man. He still taught Sunday school every Sunday up until recently. You know, he, he cares about his faith and he serves his faith in a way beyond ego, right? Beyond power, beyond make me rich. Jesus loves me, send me your money. <laughs> you know, all this kind of BS that we see now, not to mention the Christo-fascist stuff that's, that's burgeoning in the United States, to put it mildly. So let's let's talk about you know what carter's faith meant to him in terms of being a president right he cared about this country he cared about this world and this planet he was the first guy to institute you know really deep sound environmental policy we all know the famous story of putting solar panels on the white house you know in the in the backyard or in the roof i don't know exactly where they put them i know that reagan removed them right because it was like an fu to the environmental movement. And I've talked about that before on this podcast, and I think it's worth noting a lot of what we see now, the Koch brothers, the Federalist Society, these hyper-conservative organizations that buy Supreme Court justices and stuff, and they use all these social issues to divide people. Uh, abortion, which is a healthcare issue and a human rights issue. It's certainly not just a social issue. I'm using that term in an example, as an example of this conversation, right? Guns, abortion, these kind, you know, anti-LGTBQ legislation. The conservative wing of the American political establishment got really emboldened at the end of Carter's years because they needed to pump money into this stuff because they saw the writing that was on the wall, right? That if people got hip to conservation, you know, with the gas shortages that were happening, with the gas guzzlers that America was producing, you know, up until the mid-70s, late-70s, and we were getting crushed by the Japanese because they were making better, more affordable, more economic, you know, miles per gallon kind of cars, we were in trouble, right? And, and the guys that were profiting from that stuff didn't want conservation, okay? If you own an oil and gas company, you don't want cars that get 30 miles of the gallon. You know, you were happy with the Dodge Duster, you know, and Plymouth Furies and all these ridiculous cars that were like boats that I grew up in, you know, because they were cheap by then and, and it's what my mom drove and you know i had my life saved <laughs> by those cars more than once probably just for the sheer size of them but you know all of that stuff was coming to a head in the 70s and these conservative organizations knew it most notably the Koch brothers right the Koch brothers father was part of the john birch society which was the early libertarian wing and think libertarian think bill maher and Joe Rogan and just kind of dumbass white dudes, you know, who like to be contrary. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what libertarian libertarianism is. Like if anyone takes it seriously, like it's a good indication they're kind of a moron, you know? <laughs> but anyway, that was basically what existed on the American right until the Koch brothers started funding a ton of money into their libertarian organizations. And those things morphed into the Heritage Foundation you know, the Federalist Society, which is Leonard Leo, all these things started getting infused with cash because they realized at the end of Carter's administration that like this guy was going to be trouble. And if, if the sort of spirit of the 60s continued to pervade into American political consciousness and societal consciousness, it would spell big trouble for the, you know, hard line, we want to make bucks capitalist 
you know, society. So they funded all this money and they put a bunch of cash into it and they got real slick with their advertising and they also put a bunch of cash into the NRA and they started using racism as a wedge issue. Not that, you know, we didn't have obviously civil rights and, and race issues already percolating in this country, but we had hope that we were pulling ourselves back from the brink. We had an all-inclusive sort of democratic party, right? We had Jesse Jackson ran a few years after Carter in 1984, right? That would have been unheard of just 10, 20 years earlier. But, right, the Koch brothers, the rest of these guys were like, no, this Carter guy's got to go. And he went, right? They set him up with Iran and the hostages. They had Reagan, who basically ran on racism. You know, I, I know a lot of people still have fond feelings for Reagan. You know, and one-on-one -on -one as a person, he was appealing because he was actory and American-y, right? He see, you know, he was an actor. He played cowboys and stuff. But he was full of shit and he was a racist, okay? And anybody who lived under his policies knew that, like I did as a young man living in a predominantly black neighborhood outside of D.C., where we got bussed into leafy suburbs to go to school and they fed us a free breakfast and a free lunch, you know, and we got to learn alongside the white kids, even though I was a white kid, <laughs> you know, all my friends were not, you know, and we were bussed in from another neighborhood and we were made to feel like second class citizens. And when Reagan came into power, we were made to feel like criminals right and they stripped away those free lunch programs and they punished the poor and reagan ran on that okay you know with the help of lee atwater and a bunch of other guys in the shadows not to mention like the military industrial complex and wall street right they ran on that racism and it turned into a divisive issue and he became very popular in the midwest in red states in rust belt states in states that were getting hammered by by sort of capitalism you know and, and by crappy manufacturing by no real environmental and you know regulations. Look at Ohio. The Cuyahoga River was catching on fire in the 70s. Look where Ohio is now. They're still, you know, getting dumped on by giant corporations that would rather make a buck than protect the citizens that they run trains through their country. You know, that's a management philosophy, by the way, that was developed by the Koch brothers at the same time, right? It's called, it's like a vertical integration there's, a, there's an exact term, and I've used it on this podcast before, where it's cheaper. If you know that your pipeline is going to have a leak, for example, it's cheaper to let that leak happen and pay the fines that the government is going to give you than shut down production and make the repair, right? That, that's a management philosophy. You know, that stuff is dreamed up at consulting agencies, you know, that, that do studies for Wall Street companies when they take over these companies, you know, like, look, you, you know, even if in the worst case scenario, you'll still make a profit if you don't do the right thing. And it became legal to do that. And companies jumped all in on, on that, you know, and, and that's a lot of what we're seeing, you know, with, with the trained derailment in Ohio, right? The Norfolk company could have done the right thing. And, and Obama had regulations in place to make sure that they did do the right thing. And of course, Trump rolled back those regulations to update the braking systems and all this. And, and we have what has happened now. 
going on two weeks ago, over two weeks ago, you know, where, where people are going to get poisoned for generations. Let's be real. If you lived in that town, you'd be bumming right now. You know, that's all part of the same movement that went after Carter. You know, I, I, I'm so bummed that Carter is leaving, but I'm going to be at the forefront of trying to push, you know, a conversation on like, let's talk about what he really symbolized because it got, it got kind of, you know, the popular myth became there was a malaise in the country. And yes, all that was true. You know, the 70s were sort of a dark, dusty time where you were coming out of the tumultuous 60s. I was born in 71, right? So I'm only speaking from what I saw in history books, but I felt the hangover. You know, I felt what the 60s had sort of like morphed and metastasized into by the early 80s, right? The peace and love had been replaced by hard drugs on that end right and corporate you know stuff the the rock and roll and the music that we loved that was you know flower power and for the people was now nameless bands you know where you wouldn't even see the picture of the musicians it would just be a graphic you know journey toto i'm not dissing on these guys it was just the corporatization of america what was sort of a reaction to carter it was Reagan's Wall Street push. Let's banish the poor, let's banish conservation, right? Let's banish all this progressive namby-pamby BS and let's get down to brass tacks and remember who Americans are, kick-ass capitalists, right? Of course, that wasn't true. The 80s, you know, had all these financial, restructuring things right where you could you could buy a company on debt you know you could borrow the money to buy a company then gut that company and and make a profit right all kinds of things that were just you know unheard of before the the deregulation of the financial industry that reagan spearheaded and it made a lot of people really rich if you worked at an investment bank you were going to make a ton of money right and that's what everybody paid attention to the yuppies and the go-go 80s right and wall street and greed is good and all this kind of stuff right but what happened to the people you know what happened to the people back in the factories you know in, in the midwest and and the farms that turned into corporate agriculture and all this kind of stuff they got left behind you know and they got left to rust and they got left to die right and, and the rest of the world got exploited further which was always part of our deal and it got just 10 times worse and we're at where we're at now and that a lot of that was was a a snapback from Carter so to me Carter was the last really progressive president until now until Biden and Biden has shadows of Carter in my mind all the time and it's worth remarking Biden was the first senator to endorse Carter when he ran and I remember watching the Democratic Convention in 76, I guess it would have been with my grandmother who passed away this year, who loved Jimmy Carter. You know, my grandmother was a devout Catholic, you know, real deal Christian. You know, in her 80s, she was going down to Haiti and sneaking past armed guards to get up into the hills where she had built schools, you know, and wells and stuff for underprivileged people that were living there. Like, she never stopped trying to live out her faith. And, and care for people. And a lot of that was inspired by Jimmy Carter. 
As I've told you before, my grandmother opened a homeless shelter in the 80s in Peekskill, New York. It's still operational. It's still 24 hours. If you're on the streets in Peekskill, New York, and you're freezing at 2 in the morning, you're going to walk in there and you're going to get a hot bed and a hot meal. Why? Because somebody took a train in the 80s up to Westchester and froze to death, right, on the streets. And it freaked my grandmother, grandmother out and she was like, this can't happen. We got to do something about this. And at the time, George Pataki, who later became governor, was the county executive. And he tried to fight against it. You know, he's like, no, we're not going to acknowledge that there's homeless people in Westchester. This is a well-to-do county. This is the 80s, right? We're greed is good. We're Wall Street. We're Scarsdale. You know, we're Bedford. We're where the Titans live. We're not going to, you know, mess with this inner city charity stuff. And my grandma said, F you got Catholic charities to fund it, took them on and won, right? And it's still operational today. I remember vividly sitting in a living room in Crofton, Maryland with my grandmother in a den, watching it on those old TV sets with the tubes in them, you know, the wood panel, big Heathkit thing. I think my grandfather made the TV I watched, literally, you know? I remember watching it. I remember seeing Jimmy Carter. I remember seeing him speak at the convention. You know, I don't remember exactly what he said. I was six years old. But I remember the look in my grandmother's eye. And I remember her saying, that's a good man. You know, he's speaking for the poor. He's speaking for the middle class. You know, he's appealing to our better angels, right? And what more do you want from a leader? Like, that's what I want. Deal with the people on the fringes of society, on the edge of the night, the children that are going hungry, the children that need better schools. You know, that's real faith, right? They say faith without works is dead. That's the modern Christianity, you know, Christo-fascist stuff is faith without works, right? They got all the trappings of piousness and judgment and rancor, you know, Jesus gets us, <laughs> you know, those ridiculous commercials I was talking about last week. That's BS. That's a billionaire spending money on commercials during the Super Bowl, right? Same crap that, that the Koch brothers and these guys were doing. It was all billionaires back then. It's the same scam. They're trying to manipulate people and say, no, this is what religion is. I will define it for you and it involves judgment and hate, right? Animosity towards the other. That's not religion, you know? Habitat for humanity is religion. Taking care of vulnerable people is religion, you know? And Carter lived that. It wasn't for show. One of my favorite facts about Jimmy Carter in Plains, Georgia, where he lives with Rosalind now, and you know, where he went home to receive hospice care, as he's doing at this moment as we speak. The home that they live in costs less than the SUV that the Secret Service has outside to protect him, right? Because they have a, you know, a really fancy SUV, like Secret Service model, you know, that's got a few hundred thousand dollars worth of communication equipment and stuff. The car protecting this guy is worth more than the modest home he lives in. That's what he went back to after serving this country as a president, right? You don't need a Mar-a-Lago resort, right? You don't need a big house in Nantucket, you know, or a big fancy apartment on the Upper East Side. I'm not judging those who, who, who do, you know, get those things, but 
that ain't Carter, right? Carter didn't want that BS. How much do you need, right? Just enough, right? So others can have their bare minimum. You know, that's real religion. That, to me, that example says more about the man than any of the accolades that are going to start rolling in. And they're gonna, you know, and they should. He, for most of my life, he was disparaged. Kids would tell me, Carter sucks. Carter sucks. He was a weak president. I'd hear dumbass kids saying that to me, you know, in 1985, 1986, because they heard it around the kitchen table. They heard it on the mainstream news. You know, it became the, you know, the talking point surrounding Carter. At the, main time, at the same time, Reagan was dealing drugs, you know. He was flying up cocaine from Central America and dumping it in inner cities and then arresting those kids that didn't have any other choice. You know, if they wanted to make a buck, they were selling it. Not to say, you know, somebody put a gun to their head and made them sell crack, but, you know, it was temptation that if you've been that impoverished was hard, you know, to overlook. And it was, a, it was throwing fuel on a fire that he didn't care about putting out in the first place. And it was disgusting. And he was selling arms to Iran, and he was doing all kinds of cagey stuff. At the same time, they were calling Carter Week, you know. It was bullshit. It's the same thing as Trumpism. These bullshit cartoon characters that stupid mid... I don't want to always say mid... There's a lot of smart people in the Midwest. Red state America. It's here in New York. When, when I use that term, it's around me. I'm an hour outside of the city and there's Trumpers all around me. The kids I'm talking about are dudes I went to high school with in Putnam Valley, New York in the 80s. You know, it's the same syndrome. So when I talk about that, you know, most of you listeners know, I'm talking about this sort of kitchen table conservatism that, that, that Reagan popularized in American life and, and that was somewhat dormant through Clinton and the prosperity of Clinton, right, and, and Obama and the excellence of Obama. Obviously, the Bush years were a complete you know, cluster F because he didn't know what the hell he was doing. And Dick Cheney, again, was emboldened by Halliburton, KBR, right? He wanted to make money for oil companies and all those wars he, were he was prosecuting, you know, were to put money in the coffers of the company he just left. That's all it was about. It wasn't about protecting America, right? Look how much business Trump is doing right now with Saudi Arabia. The guys that funded the 9-11 attacks, right? 19 of the hijackers were from Saudi Arabia, 15 of the 19, right? Nobody investigated that. We had a private plane fly the Bin Ladens out the next day after 9-11, and then it was just like, here, war, Afghanistan, Iraq. But Iraq doesn't have anything to do with it. I don't care, you know? Saddam Hussein's bad. It was about oil. It was about making a buck, because you make a lot of money off of, you know, prosecuting wars. Right? Cost a lot of money just operationally, logistically. You get that contract like KBR, Kellogg Brown Root does, which was a subsidiary of Halliburton, which was Dick Cheney's company. You're making a fortune, trillions and trillions of dollars. Same with the oil and gas company. You know how much oil and gas they use in Afghanistan for 20 years? The American Army, you know, the service members, tons of it, right? Bullets, bombs, all that shit was big money. And Carter was anti that stuff, you know, and they knew it. And we were coming out of Vietnam, which was a disaster, and the American public knew it was a disaster, you know, and Apocalypse Now and all these movies were coming out, you know, speaking to that. 
So it was a it was an inflection point. Carter represented a time where you were either going to go really left or really right. And sadly, we went really right because Carter was Carter. You know, he, he was always going to be a stand up guy. He knew he was getting screwed. He knew Iran was screwing him. They released the hostages after Reagan won just to spite Carter. You know, Carter was the guy who negotiated their releases, you know, his administration. They just gave the win to Reagan to prop up this cowboy sheriff dumbass mentality like, all right, there's a new sheriff in town. Everything's going to be good now. And nothing was good. And we're still paying a price for that. And now we're in the post-Trump years where the country's falling apart at its seams. You know, in many ways, there's a lot of hope and, you know, Biden's doing some good things and we're in a fight. But... We're, we're certainly not on, you know, solid ground. I don't think anybody would argue that point. And, and I remember, as I said, watching it with my grandmother and seeing the way she viewed him, you know, the way she felt about him. And, and I lived with my grandmother in the 80s. You know, I moved back in with my grandmother in 1984, last day in 1984, New Year's Eve. My mom had just been arrested. She was in federal prison you know, as a result of her drug addiction and crimes she committed to feed her habit. I was a, you know, only child who was now living with my grandparents in Westchester, New York. So I was coming out of the maelstrom of what I saw Reagan do to my friends outside of DC in my multi multicultural hood. And now I was in the leafy suburbs of my own, <laughs> myself up in Westchester, surrounded by white kids who rode dirt bikes and went deer hunting. You know, and it was a different world. And I'm still friends with some of those guys today, you know, but those guys voted for Trump. You know, those guys never evolved politically from the Reagan era cartoon idea of what conservatism is and what Americanism is. And that messaging has never been stronger. You know, I rode up the Hudson Valley yesterday, drove through all these towns where they put all the veterans on the on the poles, you know, all these all these towns do this now and it's almost like announcing like this is MAGA turf you know I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't honor our veterans I'm saying this branding of a certain patriotic way of life and tying it in with the Christianity that we see on the Super Bowl that's on purpose you know somebody's paying for that because they're paying for a point of view and a mindset that they're trying to preserve and we need to look at that iconography and see how powerful it is. And Carter is a great example of that, right? Because you see what they did to him and what they demonized about him and the life he's lived since then, right? The 40 years since he's left office, the guy has lived the best life of any ex-president, hands down. You know, he set an example that hopefully many will try to live up to and probably never surpass of selfless service, you know? That guy was the president of the United States. He was a nuclear physicist, you know, scientist. He, you know, he could have cashed in a thousand times over and he never did. He just continued to work, you know? And I, I remember the Carter years, right? I remember the gas lines and all that. And he had a, with the solar panel stuff, he, he had a thing called Sunday. Right, sun slash day. It was May 3rd, 1978, and he signed a proclamation that this is International Sort of Solar Power Awareness Day. And they had a big concert on the mall 
Jackson Brown spoke, sang rather, did a concert. Jerry Brown spoke. I feel like Jimmy Buffett was there. But I remember seeing Jackson Brown play and David Lindley, you know, and I, I was probably seven, I was seven years old. So uh, I was already a Jackson Brown fan. I've told those stories before. My mom dropped me at my grandfather's when they, you know, when Running on Empty was recorded in Columbia, Maryland, and <laughs> I didn't get to go and I was all pissed off. But uh, I go to this concert, right? I go to this Sunday festival. And I remember seeing Jackson up there with his guitar. I remember seeing David Lindley with his violin. And I remember hearing the message, you know, of conservation, of we can power this place off the energy of the sun. We can clean up this planet, you know, we can live a better way. And I remember seeing that as hope. I remember all the people gathered on the mall, people climbing up in trees to get a better view and stuff. And it was, in my mind, it was an apex of that, like an apex moment of that hippie kind of thing that I'd heard about, like that, but never really got to be a part of. You know, I felt the energy and I felt the sun, <laughs> you know, I, I felt the, the, the brightness of hope, if that makes any sense, the warmth of hope right? The love and the commonality, you know, if we all work together. And, and that had a lasting effect on me. And, and my career, you know, I sort of idolized Jackson as a songwriter. Those years when I was living with my grandma and I was now, you know, pretty, also had a lot of emotional stuff to work on. Jackson Brown's records that had always been my friend my whole life were, were there with me in my loneliness too. And, uh, or, or, leaving my loneliness, right? Because, you know, I was always a popular kid too. So I always had a lot of friends and girls came on the scene <laughs> in junior high school. So I was progressively less lonely as my teenage years, you know, wore on, but I was still confused, right? I was still like sad. I still had secrets inside about who my mom was. And, you know, she came out in prison to me but uh, which was no surprise. And I was very happy that she was, you know, coming into her own truth. And I think that that fed into a lot of her addictions along with other, you know, things that are her story to tell, not mine. But you know, there's, there's always a lot of trauma and there's always a lot of things to process. And when we get sober, we get a chance to do that, as I, as I said last week. And I think my mom getting incarcerated was one of those life-saving moments for her because she wouldn't have survived otherwise. And it wasn't the end of the story, as it often isn't, but there was some positive stuff to come out of that. So the stuff with Jackson, you know, I continued to listen to him and he was my favorite. And in like the late 80s, like, you know, I was also into The Dead and a band called The Replacements. You know, I was into punk rock and stuff, but my high school, everybody just listened to classic rock because that's kind of what you were told to listen to. And Metallica and shit, which was just too heavy for me. I mean, I like it, but like, if you really had a hard life, like you didn't want to hear that hard ass music. You know, I liked Public Enemy. I liked some of the hip hop, but like, I didn't want to get pummeled in a mosh pit. You know, I wanted to be soothed. You know, I want to listen to Neil Young and stuff and I wanted to change the world. You know, I liked the clash. I liked things that had a message in it. So my grandmother buys me a ticket to go see Jackson Brown at Radio City Music Hall. And I'm like 17, it's for my birthday. So I take the train down. I, I've told this story before, I apologize if you've heard it, but you know, I'm walking around the city all day by myself waiting for this concert. It was like a Saturday afternoon, nice warm spring, New York, 
you know, spring day and uh, had a couple beers. You know, you could just buy beer in the deli back then. They didn't card you or anything, which was a bonus um, for a budding alcoholic, you know. And uh, I snuck into Rockefeller Center first. I was trying to find Studio 8H and I just ended up getting up the elevator bank in Rockefeller Center and, and getting off on a floor at NBC and it was a Saturday and nobody was there and some I had to ask for help to get out of there. Like some lady, I was like, can you help me? I shouldn't be here. <laughs> and she's like, God, security sucks. Here, let me help you get out of here. But I was just wandering into these buildings like TV, NBC, you know? And my grandfather, full disclosure, worked for NBC at the time who I lived with, but he was in the computer department, which was up in Terrytown. So I sneak into NBC and then I go across the street and it's Radio City and I sneak in the side door. You know, and I, same deal. I walk in the stage door, uh, anybody on 51st Street, if you know the building, and, you know, and I just get past and get in an elevator. And I get off the elevator. I didn't even know which floor to press, and I press like four. Yeah, that seems like a good floor. <laughs> I press like four. I get off. There's a security guard there. He's reading a book. It's Bonfire of the Vanities. Now, I'd read an advanced copy because my grandmother worked for a financial services kind of guy who did business with Carl Icahn. Carl Icahn, one of the big advisors to Trump, one of the guys who was the architect of that corporate raider kind of mentality that I spoke of before, still out there doing his thing. <laughs> and uh, he'd bought the rights to Bonfire of the Vanities to make the film and had given advanced copies and my grandmother brought one home. So I'd read it early, and it was a very popular book. And, and so I, I get off the elevator, and this security guard is sitting there reading this book. And I try to BS my way past him. I say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm David Lindley's kid or whatever. I just started, like, dropping names. He didn't know any of the names, you know. And uh, as he, he shouldn't, right? He's a security guard. Like, there's a different act every night. So I'm bullshitting him. I'm realizing that won't work. And I look down at the book, and I see he's pretty early into the book. And I go, hey, did he hit the kid yet? And he goes, what? And I'm like, he runs over a guy up in the Bronx. And he's like, oh, no, man, I didn't know that. Just go, dude. <laughs> you know, Get out of here before you ruin the story. And uh, so he waves me on, and I walk down a hall, and I pop into a room, and Jackson's manager, Buddha, is sitting right there. He's still his manager to this day. And he goes, can I help you? And I look across the room, and Jackson's looking out the window. You know, And he turns around, he sees this kid in his room. You know, I was 17, I looked like I was 12. And I said, I just want to shake that guy's hand right there, you know? And Jackson comes over and shakes my hand. I said, hey, man, I'm so excited to hear you play with David Lindley tonight. I haven't seen you guys play together since the Sunday festival. And Jackson was like, what? You were there? You must have been this big, <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, I was there, and I remember it, and it inspired my sort of progressive, you know, ideology, and I like to speak out when I can myself, and I'm digging your new album, which was all about Central American imperialism in Central America. He had an album called Lives in the Balance that tried to explain a lot of what Reagan was doing with Iran-Contra and with, like, the CIA running cocaine and all this stuff. You know, because that's a murky story that still sounds like you're wearing a tinfoil hat when you tell people, though it's very true and uh, very well documented at this point. But in the 80s, it was incredibly murky, and people didn't understand Ollie North and why he was arrested and what this stuff was. Elliot Abrams, Bill Barr was key to all this stuff, got everybody off as he does, 
and uh, we'll, we'll do a sub chapter on Bill Barr and you know we, we did that episode a couple weeks ago with Durham and stuff but anyway I don't want to digress too much so I'd say to Jackson like hey I wrote a paper myself trying to explain American imperialism in Central America to my classmates and I got an A plus on it you know it was like this might have been around my senior year it was either junior or senior year, you know, but it was a big paper. It helped me graduate because I wasn't a good student. Otherwise, I just couldn't, not that I couldn't be bothered. I just, because of what my childhood was like, I could barely concentrate. You know, I was, I was about trying to socialize when I was in school. You know, I wasn't about like, oh, I'm going to get into the best college. Like, I knew what I was kind of going to do, whatever that was going to be, and it wasn't going to be a traditional <laughs> route. I went to drama school in the end. But, uh... So I tell Jackson, like, hey, I'm going to graduate high school thanks to you. I wrote this paper and stuff. And he was so bemused or, you know, amused and like just couldn't believe this kid was coming into his dressing room talking about all this stuff, you know. And, and I, I've probably told you guys the rest of that story. A couple of years later, I ran into him in D.C. and he started inviting me. You know, I got backstage passes a couple times. And, th and that's when I saw that there was this whole world behind the stage. And that inspired me to go into production. That's why I went into TV production and music and all the stuff I did. And, you know, 15 years into my career, now I'm like 35, and I run into Jackson again when he's getting inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And I go down to meet him. We were doing it at the Marriott Marquis, and he gets out of the van, and I grab his guitar case, and I say, Hey, Jackson, I'm Noel. I'm going to help you today. You know, and he goes, You're the kid with the paper, aren't you? <laughs> and he remembered me. You know, he remembered me and he said to me, you know, that's still the best example I have of one of my songs doing something good in the world and changing somebody's life. I'm going to talk about you in my speech tonight. And I was blown away. I was like, what? You know, and I ended up doing the, the gig and getting hired, you know, to go on tour with him as his road manager. And I ended up getting to see the world for the first time, thanks to Jackson Brown. That's how that all works out. Follow an inspiration. Follow something that feels good to you, right? And the Carter stuff felt good to me. The progressive politics felt good to me. You know, this is also the time of the Muse benefits, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Springsteen, and Jackson, you know, and Tom Petty and these guys put together, James Taylor, you know, John Hall, Orleans John Hall, not Hall and Oates. And uh, that was all seminal. To me, and I ended up working with all of those people, and I ended up, you know, watching the, the the No Nukes benefit concert on a tour bus with Jackson going across Canada in the middle of the night, 11 years ago, or 2011, you know, 10, or 12 years ago, or whatever. That was so weird to me. In that moment where I'm watching him watch the younger version of him, knowing I saw that movie myself in in the movie theater, and it inspired me to sort of marry art with progressivism. And then I'm watching it with the guy who inspired me. It, it's, it's a very weird thing how stuff works out. And, and you never know how it's gonna work out and you almost can't plan it. You gotta be open to the whims and, and you gotta be grounded in who you are and what you wanna do. I'm not somebody who could give you any advice on having a successful career and making a lot of money <laughs> in the entertainment business because I never made that much money. I always felt like I was working on commission. Like it might pay off someday, but the experiences are what matter. You know, I always, and they paid me to do this stuff. I'm, I wasn't like a pauper, but 
it was about like these stories matter to me. These experiences matter. There might be something to learn here. Uh, you know, I always thought of it as an apprenticeship. Did you ever read Narcissus and Goldman, Herman Hesse? You know, there's the guy who goes off and he, it, he tries to become an artist and he, you know, he's, a, he's a, an intern. They don't call it an intern back then, you know, but he has to join the guild and like he learns these various like things and he has to put in all this time and pay his dues to sort of study at the feet of these people. That's how I always felt about anything I did is that there was some sort of higher power guiding me and I'm meant to be seeing this because it, it, it tracked with what I believed in and what I wanted to do. And the best thing that ever happened to me was getting into TV because then I had no control over who I got to work with, right? In music, you tend to work with the bands that are, you know, part of, that you're of that ilk, right? CSN, Jackson, like there's a reason, you know, everybody who works for those guys kind of knows the music and the style of music because it, it all fits together. The equipment, there's an aesthetic that you kind of got to be hip to you know but in live tv it's whoever gets booked on the gig and, and when my career began in 1993 so much of it was like hip-hop right and, and and you know sort of urban radio you know the new jack swing i did a lot of stuff with michael jackson um you know uh whitney houston it was all these random acts that, that i wouldn't normally be working with that expanded my mind right because it opened me up to other ways of thinking and other music and seeing how it's all a business it's all a craft you know and the things that make you good at it the things that 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 provide excellence are, are common to all of these things you know and, and some of my greatest moments are like you know watching alicia keys or somebody that i didn't think was going to move me and i'm just crying on my job because I'd been so moved and I've made friendships that have lasted you know a long time decades through that so that was a blessing and I was hip enough to 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 get with that you know to realize that like hey it doesn't matter who they assigned me to like people would go into the gig like hey I'm a big fan of this person can I get that assignment I'd be like give me whoever I'm meant to, to, you know, to work with, because I'm going to learn something. I'm going to see something. And it wasn't always good. You know, some of it was hard as hell. You know, Madonna was not an easy person to work with back in the day, you know. She probably still isn't, you know. But uh, I, last time I worked with her, I think, was 2018. I always did kind of okay with Madonna's people. I got what it was about. But you get my point. You know, and the All-Star Games on this weekend, the NBA All-Star Game. I did that for 11 years in a row, maybe 12. I lost track. The last one I did was New Orleans uh, 2017, right after Trump got elected. And I crawled out of there. <laughs> you know, I was burnt. And that's kind of when I left the business and went into comedy and my own performing because I knew I was done, right? And I was down there with the roots all week and it was awesome. But that became a family. And I don't know anything about basketball, you know? They called me out on the court one time to, to, to do layups, and I didn't know what a layup was for camera blocking. They're like, no, can you come down and shoot some layups? I'm like, what's a layup, <laughs> you know? But I worked with Dr. John, and I worked with, you know, Pharrell, and I worked with Shakira, and I worked with just random, you know, to me, different artists. Dr. John's in my, you know, wheelhouse, but, 
it expanded, you know, it expanded my world. I got to see the NBA, which is first class organization. They treat everybody like a family. You know, it makes the NFL, the Super Bowl, which I'd always do right before it look like some kind of mafia organization, like a gang compared to like the excellence that that is the NBA, you know. So I'm getting off topic here, right? But I, I'd work with random people and that's a blessing. So my, my, my point is that in that is stay open, you know, stay open to things that aren't natural to you, you know, that, that might not be, that might be out of your comfort zone. And I saw Carter as a president who wasn't afraid to ask that of American people, right? I still, if, if you live with me and you like to be really warm in the house, you're going to be bumming probably because <laughs> I still turn the thermostat down. You know, Carter was like 65 and put on a sweater. That's extreme. Mine's at below 65 every night and probably 68 to 70 during the day. It's never been above 70, you know, and I always wear a sweater. I'm not, I'm freezing now for the look. <laughs> but uh, my point is you can dress warmer. And I think of that every time. You know, turning up that heat, you're putting, you're putting like, you know, fossil fuels. You're putting carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide into the air, carbon monoxide. But, um, you know, he, he was asking people stuff. Like, what kind of president is going to tell you, hey, you might get uncomfortable, but you'll save the planet? Most presidents bullshit you and try to appeal to your comfort, not challenge you to live better. You know, that, that's what real religion does, right? Real religion, real sense of spirituality challenges those around them. It doesn't tell you what you want to hear, you know? It appeals to what you can be, what you can do better to think about your fellow man with empathy. The first time I met Jimmy Carter, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting him a couple times. He was very close with Crosby, Stills and Nash. You know, Stephen Stills, his business manager, worked in the Carter administration. Chip Carter would come to concerts all the time. Uh, Graham goes way back. Graham and his road manager smoked a joint in the White House. I probably shouldn't tell you this. You know, visiting Carter and stuff. Like, so these guys all go way back. And I've done, you know, last time I saw Jimmy Carter was with Graham Nash at the uh, Civil Rights Summit, which is part of the LBJ Library at the University of Texas. And when, we flew out there in spring of 2014. I think we were at the end of a you know, spring tour on the West Coast and Graham and I flew out there. And we were supposed to actually have dinner with Jimmy Carter, President Carter that night, but Graham had to go back to LA and I was the road manager. <laughs> I wasn't like, well, can I go to dinner too? But uh, we got to hang out with him during the day. And I remember I was in, and you know, this is an event where you had Mavis Staples, you had David Boies, the great lawyer. You had Bill Clinton. You had Graham Nash performing. Uh, Mavis performed and gave a talk. You know, it's a, it's a summit. It's like over Lady Bird. Lady Bird's daughter was there and greeted us, who looks like Lady Bird Johnson. Like, we got a private tour of the civil rights. They have a, a library, a civil rights library, and Graham and I got like the private tour because Graham's also a very well-known photographer. You guys might not know that, but he helped develop the first color printer and did all this stuff in photography that it's a whole other world he has as a photographer. So whenever we go to a town that has cool stuff like that, we, we get these like VIP tours. So we got this behind the scenes tour of the Civil Rights Museum 
and I think the Guten, they have a Gutenberg Bible there too, we saw, but uh, one of the original ones. But uh, I remember seeing these pictures in the hallway, the staff hallway, and they were pictures of, of Texans in the civil rights era in the 60s, right? And they were yelling at like, you know, you know, anti-segregationists, people crossing lines to go to schools and stuff, African-American people, and there was these white, you know, Southern cop-looking people yelling at them. And I remember their faces and like their mouths twisted in hate and their eyes, and it was like, oh my God, I've seen this look before. Like, this is an ancient black and white picture or 60-year-old picture, but I know this look. I've seen this look. You could see it in the Tea Party stuff right? You could see it in the, you know, this is obviously before Trump announced. This is about a year before Trump announced, but you could feel that groundswell. You could see it in the opposition of Michael Brown, who was a teenager who was murdered outside of St. Louis, and, and the opposition to that. You could see it in Florida, you know, where that young man was murdered and they let the dude off who killed him. You know, he was just walking through his, a neighborhood with a hoodie on, Right. So you could see the, you know, blue lives matter, like screw you. You can't question us. You know, this is the way it is. You could see that invective and that hate on these people's faces. And I remember pointing it out to Graham and being like, does that look familiar? <laughs> you know, that that should be something in the past. And as we know, it's only gotten worse since then. But so we do this gig and we, we end up in the hallway and President Carter comes down the hallway and sees Graham and he's like, hey man, you know, what's up? Whatever, he's talking to Graham and they're bullshitting and I, I put a picture on Twitter of this, you know? So I'm trying to play cool, but I'm like, I gotta get a picture, you know? Not a selfie, I wasn't gonna ask for a selfie, but like I wanted to document it for myself. And Jimmy talks to Graham, it's just me, Graham, President Carter, couple security, you know, Secret Service guys kind of hanging back. And President Carter talks to Graham and then he turns to me and he goes, hey man, how you doing? And I'm like, God damn, like he was the coolest guy in the world. Like he said, hey man, not like, hello sir or son or whatever. You know, he was like, hey man, like he sounded like, you know, he was like the Allman Brothers manager, you know, <laughs> like he was, you could just tell in that, hey man, how cool he was, you know, and that was the last time I saw him and he's a hero of mine. But I wanna talk about the first time I met him as I, I, before this rant, that's how I started it. I was assigned to him for the Goodwill Games, which was something we did in New York City. It was Ted Turner's Goodwill Games. We did it down at the, the Winter Garden, which was, or the Winter Green, that there was a, there was a uh, glass structure that was part of the, the Twin Towers. That was like behind the Twin Towers at Battery Park City. It got destroyed, obviously, when the towers came down. But it, some of you New Yorkers know what I'm talking about. So we did it there and we did it on, you know, kind of Bryant Park adjacent. And uh, not Bryant Park, yeah, Battery Park, sorry. We're almost at the end of the episode, folks. Bear with me. So it was, you know, Battery Park City, you know, 9-11, Ground Zero before 9-11 before Ground Zero. You know what it's called, you get my point. So we do this event down there and we had George Pataki, who's now governor, who's popping up again, Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor, and Giuliani made everybody wait. That's when he crumpled up his script and threw it in my face and cursed me out and said, I'm not effing saying this, you better change this. 
It was the first time I ever met Giuliani face to face and he's cursing me out and throwing paper in my face and he's the mayor of the city, you know? So you've heard me probably tell that story before, complete psycho, right? And Jimmy Carter, and I'm assigned to Jimmy. So I go down to meet him where they're gonna drop him, right? This little checkpoint in Battery Park because it was all kind of closed off and we had a stage and all this, you know, deal. Hootie and the Blowfish played with Isaac Hayes and Mark Cohn, and uh, who, who's friends with me, but uh, or I'm friends with him, whatever. Um, so I go to meet Carter and I show up early and, and somebody else is like, you know, hey, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm going to be, you know, Jimmy Carter, President Carter's escort and stuff. And a secret service guy came over to me to just meet me. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm just the escort. You know, I'm just the guy points you to the stage. I'm not getting in the way of whatever you're doing. And he was like, okay, cool. And this secret service guy was like my size and he had like a lazy eye, you know? And he was like, I, I couldn't believe this guy was a secret service guy because he was just so unassuming and, and kind of like slender dude. But he, you got the sense like this guy could kill you 10 times, like 10 different ways with his bare hands, you know? He just had that uber slick like yeah, I don't even need to like impress you in any kind of physical way because like you're already dead <laughs> if I put my hands on you. It was just a weird thing that I remember seeing about this guy. But anyway, so President Carter gets dropped off and I start to make the my way to the stage. And they're, you know, get him to the stage. We got everybody else waiting. You know, I got my earpiece. They're kind of yelling at me. And uh, we, we, we sort of make our way up this path. It's a couple, you know, 100 yards or something. And this young girl comes up. We had a bunch of school kids there and stuff, and there's this young girl, beautiful, beautiful young African-American student who was there as part of, you know, a, a choir or, you know, a group of students that were part of the event. Probably, you know, seven. Probably about the age I was when I saw Carter's first convention in 1976. This young child. So there's all these adults there's all these security, you know, as a former president walking through. It's a, it's as VIP as it gets, right? Ted Turner is there. Uh, Gerald Levin was there, who was the head of Time Warner, big billionaire. So it's like all these big shots. And this little kid came up to Jimmy Carter, like sort of broke through the crowd and went up to him to meet him. And he stopped everybody, kneeled down, and was like, hey, young lady, what's your name? What are you doing? And I thought it was going to be like, hey, you know, say hi and keep it moving. He stopped and would not move. And he went down, got down on his knees to talk to her like she was the only person in the world. And he goes, what are you studying? What are they teaching you? Where do you live? You know, you live with your mom and dad. You know, how's, every, how's that going? You know, how's your life? What were your grades last year? How do you think you can get better grades? What else do you like doing? Do you like sports? You know, he was given so much of himself to this kid. And I'd been in the business long enough at that point to know when someone was bullshitting, you know, when they were doing it for the cameras. And this was before selfies kind of, but you know, you could see the sincerity and it was all he cared about. You know, and, and this guy had to go give a speech and do all this fancy stuff seconds later. And his whole universe was on this child and how he could impact her in a positive way and not giving her just some lines that he's given to a thousand other kids. 
you know, asking questions of her, treating her like she was the only person in the world. And I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget standing next to him because I felt the spirit, you know? I felt like that's what it's about, man. It's not about how much you can accomplish. It's about every person you meet in life, how do you make their life better? If you get the opportunity and they're giving you some of their time and they want to meet you, meet them, you know? Meet them with your own spirit and your own open heart and your own excellence, you know? I don't know where that kid is today. I'll bet she went on to do some good things, <laughs> you know? I'll bet he was passing something on. As Graham would always say, Graham Nash, he would say, because he would do the same thing. He would take so much time with fans, you know, where I would get impatient. And I'm not even the famous one. I'd be like, hey, we got a flight to catch, you know? And he'd always be like, hey, no, wait. You know, they, they want to touch the flame. You know, not that I'm super hot, but he, that's what he called it, touching the flame, meaning passing it on, right? Whatever inspires you, when you get to meet your heroes, you think, wow, they're just people too. Maybe I could do that, you know? That's what happened to Graham when he and Alan Clark met the Everly brothers in Manchester. You know, they had to walk home like 20 miles because they stayed after the concert to meet Phil and Don Everly. And they met him, and they were 15 years old. And Phil and Don came out and talked to Alan and Graham and said, you guys can do it. Yeah, you can make a band. You can do all this. And they did. They formed the Hollies, you know, and sang some incredible, you know, harmonies and bus stop and all this stuff. You know, listen to the Hollies on your Apple Music when you're done with this podcast. You'll thank me, right? But it was about touching the flame. And that's what happened to me when I snuck into Jackson's dressing room. And when I met him a couple years after that, he said, oh, you're the audacious one, <laughs> you know, because, you know, it takes a certain amount of audacity because you're like, I don't know how to get where I'm going, but I know that's where I want to be. And I want to get around the people that are going to help me get there. Right. And that's what Carter was doing. Right. It was touching the flame. You know, that young lady wanted to touch the a little girl wanted to touch the flame. And Carter understood that, you know, and he was like, here, here's a whole book of matches, you know, and Bill Clinton's good at that, too. You know, Bill's got his other things, but, you know, Bill was at that civil rights summit. And a couple days later, I was on a, a gig in New York at, at uh, Carnegie Hall, like four days later with Elton John and all these big people. And uh, every, everybody knows the stage right, if you don't know it, the stage right. Uh, Carnegie Hall is this tiny little area and it's the only place to stay. So when you're doing like a big event there, it just gets jam-packed, you know, and you'll have Cindy, Chrissy Teigen and, you know, Rosie and just all these big people are sitting there and it gets really kind of like, it's like a green room. It's like it just, it festers with fame quickly, <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm always on the logistics, you know, talent crew. I'm the unfamous guy, but I'm always there and people know my face. So, Clinton walks in to this room a couple days later, you know, and, and I was Clinton's escort for years whenever he did something in New York. So he kind of knows my face a little, but who, who, who knows if he really does, you know? And uh, 
he walks into this sort of stage right green room area and he looks around and it's sort of like a political moment. Like whoever, whatever celebrity he says hi to first, he's sort of anointing them, you know, and, and dissing the other ones, which is a difficult position for him to be in. So he looks around, scans the room, he sees me, comes right over to me and puts his arm around me. He's like, hey dude, what's up? <laughs> you know, which he's done before, you know, and everyone else is like, who's that guy? Why is President Clinton saying hi to him? You know, but touching the flame and, and, and Clinton will do that. He'll, he'll give you his full attention. And you've heard some probably other funny stories I've told about that, but there's something important in that. I've seen Bon Jovi do it, you know, I've seen Bruce do it. I've seen Jackson do it, and, and it's not, a, you know, everyone's kind of famous now, right? Everybody's got internet, and, you know, their own, everybody's the star of their own show, and that's good and bad, right? But there's something about one-on-one -on -one inspiration with your heroes and, and seeing that they're human and thinking like, man, I could, I could get into that, you know? I, there might be a way for me, because I, as a kid, was, felt like I wasn't going to get those opportunities, you know, because of what I've expressed, you know? Didn't really know my dad, left when I was three or four, had this broken relationship with him, got worse, you know, and more alienating as I aged. You know, my mom was very troubled, like I was kind of from the wrong side of the tracks, though some of my family wasn't. So, you know, you feel inadequate in, in many ways and you feel like things aren't going to work out for you. Going to drama school for me was the big thing that turned it around. Besides work in production, then I went to drama school. It all kind of happened around the same time in the early 90s. I started, I went to the Academy in 94, American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and it was kind of like, oh, I get to follow my dreams too in life. I get to be an actor or study acting if I want to, you know? I get to go, you know, do the things that the fortunate kids get to do with their lives. It's important. It's important to hold on to your dreams. It's important to find a way to pursue them. And it's important not to let your life circumstance knock you away from that stuff. It doesn't mean don't be realistic, you know, and don't understand the amount of hard work and sacrifice it's going to take to really want something. And it certainly means you're going to have to understand what what you really want, right? Do you want to be an artist or do you want to be famous? You know, because it's, it's, it's two different things, you know? And the good news, you can do your art no matter what. You might not be able to make your living off of it, but you can still do it. And it's the same thing, okay? So don't, don't stress it, you know? I heard Whoopi say that to somebody once, like, do you want to be a movie star or do you want to be an actor? Because there's a difference, you know? And, and I heard her say that when I was in drama school and I was like, that's good advice right? Alec Baldwin said a similar thing. He's like, you know, movie star is something different than actor. He's like, my friends that are actors are working right now at a theater out in Long Island, <laughs> and they're always in something, and you don't know their name, and they're not rich, but they're working, you know? They're, they're applying their craft, and, and you can do that. Nobody can stop you from doing that, and that's a good thing to learn, right? Because there's all kinds of avenues that'll grow out of that creativity, and it all starts with touching the flame, finding your little piece, uh, 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 you know, the little key that helps you start to unlock those doors. I watched the Meet the Fablemans or the Fablemans last night. Excellent film. I don't know who this Steven Spielberg guy is. I never heard of him before, but this dude's got a future. Keep your eye on this dude because this guy, this guy knows how to frame a shot. 
<laughs> but anyway, it's about you know a young a young Steven Spielberg, and the best. I won't ruin the movie for you if you haven't seen it, but. There's a great scene with Judd Hirsch, who I saw in I'm Not Rappaport, with my grandparents at West Point in high school. Probably, besides Fences, one of the first like plays I saw that just blew me away, you know, and seeing a famous guy on stage. Because <laughs> the fame still attracts you, let's be real, you know, but that, that's your way in, right? That's the pop music of it all, right? You know, and then you realize, hey, this other actor I never heard of is just as good, you know? But anyway, there's a there's a great scene with Judd Hirsch where you know the, he gives the young Steven Spielberg a talk about the arts you know and, and Judd's character had been off working with the circus and all this kind of stuff and he 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 looks at his nephew and he's like you're an artist you know I can tell you're bitten by the bug it'll break your heart you're gonna have to give up things in life to really go after this dream. And I can tell already you want it that way. You know, you would shovel shit just to get an opportunity to be in the circus, you know? And, and that's how it was for me. When I got into TV and rock and roll, it was like, whatever I gotta do to be in the room, I'm gonna do it, you know, within bounds, <laughs> you know? but. Like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the first gig I did with, with, with CSN, we, we were rehearsing at SIR. I told this story recently, that's why I'm coming back to it. And I had to run out and get the sandwiches for everybody. And there's a nice like Italian sandwich shop nearby and I'm riding my bike around in the rain and I come back and I'm dripping wet. And that guy, Buddha, the same guy who was in Jackson's dressing room when I was a kid, now I'm 36 or seven or something and I'm walking in there with dripping wet. And he's like, no, you just kicked ass. Like, how did you get out there and get all this stuff done? And I'm like, this is my role. This is my part in it. And I'm gonna do it as good as it can possibly be done to match that level, you know, of Bonnie Raitt and Jackson and CSN sitting there kicking ass in that room. And the one picture I'd always wished I'd taken, I must do a painting of it someday, but we lined up all the sandwiches and Will Nash, who's Graham's son, who was his road manager for a long time, labels them all because he had like a master list of what everybody ordered and it was just like bonnie james jackson cross you know stills like all of these sandwiches on top of a road case you know in the white deli paper with these names written on them these names that were like a roadmap for the music you know that it inspired me my whole life you know and their lunch was right there and I'd gotten their lunch for him, you know? <laughs> like that was my part in it that day. That might not be meaningful to you, you know? That was meaningful to me. That was a moment of the sort of banality of what it would take to make it in the arts and the magic of it all and the excellence of it all, right? Because we're all just human. We all need to eat lunch. We all need to be inspired. We all need to be in and out of the rain. We all need people supporting us to make it, you know, it takes a village, you know, and when your dreams come true, if you can help somebody else's dreams come true, then you're really winning, right? You're, you're helping somebody else touch the flame. You're passing it on because you can't take it with you. But while you're here, you can turn it up bright. You can let it shine. And President Carter did that. He did that like no other American did in my lifetime, in my opinion, in the same way that he did, you know? He's not alone, but he's 
He's an example of what we could all aspire to be, you know? It's a life well lived, and I just wanted to come on and, and pay tribute to it. I don't know how long he's going to last. That's not the point of this. I, I, I feel like you're going to hear a lot of stuff this week, and I wanted to get my two cents in there. And I feel like I did a pretty good job. I'm satisfied. <laughs> so for me, you know, the, all the facts and all the details will be written and, and read it because it's worth studying who he is because you got, you got fed a line of bullshit about him. You know, he wasn't given the opportunity to succeed in the way he should have, and he had a short term, but his legacy will live on, you know. As the years go on, you know, we've already seen how Reagan's stuff has been rewritten, right? People are kind of hip to what really went down and, you know, the moral rot of the Reagan years. So, like, Carter was the opposite of that. And he continued to expire, inspire. He led by example, and it's a wonderful life worth celebrating. So if we find ourselves mourning him this week, let's celebrate the good things. So thank you for listening. This is episode 94, nope, 95. Hopefully the music worked. Let's pull out the McAllister again. And uh, Thank you guys appreciate you listening peggy bought a t-shirt recently thank you peggy if you guys want a t-shirt you can get them at noelcastler.com they're noel castler podcast t-shirts they're um they're silk screen they're they're properly done they cost a little bit but they're high quality cotton and they're well made old school concert t-shirts Substack, I'm writing on there. That's the only way I fund any of this stuff. It's all free. I'm not asking for money, but if you like the pod and you want to support it, consider the Substack, which is also free. Anything I do, you can get for free. But if you want to support it, it's 12 bucks a month. I do put a lot of work into those Substacks, and maybe I'll write something a little more cogent uh, in, in response to uh, Jimmy Carter. But I wanted to get this episode out, and I wanted to hear my guitar <laughs> on YouTube. So it's a blessing as always folks take care of yourself we got this you know we got this go out there and touch the flame or let somebody else touch yours all right peace <laughs>